Nothing really mattered to me But making myself happy I was the only one Now that I am grown Everything's changed I'll never be the same Because of you Episode 5 of the Male Mysteries Podcast. This is part 2 of a three-part triad of shows on aging and age differences among gay and bi men. In the last episode, we talked about aging and ageism, and in the next show, we'll discuss mentorship. Today, however, we will talk about rites of passage, specifically how they relate to gay and bi men. I have an interview with a rites of passage expert from my local area. I'll introduce two rites of passage that are specific to the gay and bi male community, our god for this month is Kernunos, the horned, and the horny, god. There will be letters and news, and maybe even a song or two. So sit back, take a breather from whatever else you might be doing, and enter the world of the male mysteries. Many gay and bisexual men, dissatisfied with modern religions that struggle to accept and condone us, are hearing the call of the old gods, those gods and religions of antiquity, that embraced us and recognized our inherent spirituality. While modern religions debate our worth as lovers, as priests, as sexual beings, the old gods and the old religions embraced us as sacred. We were their shamans, their priests, the intermediaries between the gods and mankind. Many of the gods themselves were homosexual, bisexual, or transgendered. These gods were untamed, vibrant, and sexual. Accept their call and their healing embrace. These are the Male Mysteries, and I'm your host, Male Mystery. Kernunos, the horned god, lord of the hunt, primal Celtic god of animals, wild places, wealth, the underworld, and male sexuality. He was worshipped in Gaul and in Scotland, Ireland, and Britain as well. This god is depicted with the antlers of a stag. He sometimes holds a torque and a ram-headed snake, and sometimes a purse of coins or a cornucopia. The torque is a symbol of power and success, while the ram-headed snake was an obvious phallic symbol. The purse and cornucopia represent wealth and abundance. The Romans sometimes portrayed him with three cranes flying over his head, possibly because cranes are associated with travel to the Celtic underworld. One of the most famous images of him is the Gundestrap cauldron discovered in Denmark. 
He is usually shown seated or cross-legged, which some have interpreted as meditative or shamanic. In eastern forested regions in Britain, Kernonos is known as Herni or Sylvanus and appears as a naked phallic hunter. While exact relationships cannot be proven, Kernonos-like deities exist in non-Celtic cultures. He may be linked to the Greek god Pan, the Norse vegetation deity Vidar, the minotaur of the Minoans, and Pashupati, the Hindu lord of the animals. Like Kernonos, all of these horned male gods are associated with nature, animals, and the primordial wild. The significance of a horned god may go back as far as the Old Stone Age. A cave painting known as the Sorcerer depicts a man with horns. Whether this is an early depiction of the horned god is unclear, but it does go to show that the magical, ceremonial, and religious significance of a horned man reaches back to the Paleolithic era. Kernonos was such a popular god that the Catholic Church demonized him and chose him as their image for Satan. Before that time, Satan was depicted as a fallen angel and was associated with the serpent from the Garden of Eden story. The stag god is born at the winter solstice, marries the goddess at Beltane, and dies at the summer solstice. To some, he is known as Old Horny, both because of the horns on his head and his primal sexual energy that makes you feel horny in his presence. For men, his power and energy can be intense. Kernunos rules nature, woodlands, forests, hunting, death, reincarnation, fertility, crossroads, sacrifice, magic, circles, cycles, initiation, wild animals, all horned animals, the underworld, the astral plane, and physical love. He is the patron of hunters and warriors. In my research, I was unable to find anything to prove that this god had same-sex relations. However, if he did, this would be a bisexual god since there is a marriage and sexual union with the goddess of Beltane. At the same time, there is some justification to infer that this in is indeed a bisexual god. For one thing, sexual and phallic gods often are bisexual, and close cousins of the sad gods such as Pan and Satyrs most certainly were. We already mentioned evidence of Celtic bisexuality in the last episode, where Celtic men had a woman on one side and a boy on the other. Since Kernunos is largely a Celtic god, it is unlikely that the Celt would have had hang-ups about him being bisexual. As an end note, I did find a gay and bisexual men's group online dedicated to the worship of Kernunos. It's called Homomoot, and I'll include a link on the Male Mysteries webpage. I'm actually very much intrigued by this group and workshop series. If it weren't for the fact that this all takes place overseas in Wales, I would probably make a point to attend. What intrigues me most about this group is its openness to sexuality and how it moves this into the realm of the sacred. Just reading the website is very sexual and maybe too much for some. The main premise of the website seems to be that the sexual acts and even homosexual acts are sacred to Kernonos. The group is even planning a sacred orgiastic ritual on Beltane this year. As for my own experiences with Kernonos, four years ago at a men's retreat I helped put together, we held a rite for the stag god. After dark, the participants were called out of the cabin where we stayed. The stag god beckoned them to follow along a dark forest trail by a bog and into the night. There were five stations along the trail, and at each, participants received a gift from the stag god related to each of the four elements. At the fifth station, we all celebrated with a feast of moon pies and alcohol. As we drummed, the frogs in the swamp increased their volume and tempo as if celebrating with us. This is the charge of the stag god. I am the fire within your heart, the yearning of your soul. I am the hunter of knowledge and the seeker of the holy quest. I who stand in the darkness of light and he whom you have called death. I am the consort and mate of her we adore. Call forth to thee, heed my call, beloved ones. Come unto me and learn the secrets of death and of peace. I am the corn at harvest and the fruit on the trees. I am he who leads you home. Scourge and flame, blade and blood, these are mine and gifts to thee. Call unto me from the forest wild and on hilltops bare, and seek me in the darkness bright. I who have been called Pan, Herni, Osiris, Kernunos, and Hades, speak to thee in thy search. Come dance and sing. Come love and smile, for behold, this is my worship. You are my children, and I am thy father. On swift night wings, it is I who lays you at your mother's feet to be reborn and to return again. But thou 
thou who thinks to seek me, know that I am the untamed wild, the fury of the storm, passion in your soul. Seek me with courage, lest you be swept away in thy seeking. Seek me with pride and humility, but seek me best with love and strength. For this is my path, and I love not the weak and the fearful. Hear my call on long winter nights, and we shall stand together, guarding her earth as she sleeps. expected a flood of letters after my controversial show segment last month on the topic of pederasty. I expected some very strong opinions to be expressed about how even mentioning it might feed into anti-gay myths and stereotypes about gay men. All month I waited for the police or the FBI to show up on my doorstep just for expressing an opinion that goes against the heterosexual norm. I suppose they were too busy with that polygamous compound where 13-year-olds were being impregnated to be concerned about me. Anyway, I did get one letter from Mark, so I'm not totally disappointed. Anyway, Mark talked about his own incidents with ageism. Here's Mark's letter. I found myself reliving several painful incidents in my own life as a result of ageism in the gay community. I'm not going to detail those here. The thing is, a gay man can't open his mouth about anything without being accused of having sex as his goal. 
What do you do when you have no hidden agenda? These days at 67 I am blessed with a wide range of friends, but there are none in the category one might call gay youth. To them I am just a dirty old man on the make. It's an automatic reaction. My boyfriends and lovers have been older than me. Mostly there was stability in the relationship that I liked. Well these days I say I didn't like twinks even when I was one. Older men will court you, romance you, in the most old-fashioned way. That's nice. I like not being rushed into the bedroom, you know, slow dancing instead of the frog. I back off from youth these days. First because I am no one's sugar daddy, or anyone's daddy. Then because of the legal problems and the entrapment out there. I think gay youth suffers for not knowing their seniors. Their history now includes me, and they are not going to receive the benefit of knowing my story, the value of which I admit is yet to be calculated. Mel, thanks for the program. I look forward to part two. Up with the old guys. Hey, you're the cutest troll I've ever seen. What exactly is a rite of passage, and how is it different from an initiation? Does everyone share the same rites of passage, or are they different for each person? Are there rites of passage specific to gay and bi men? If not, should there be? Those are some of the questions I hope to answer in today's show. Essentially, a rite of passage is a ceremony or initiatory experience that serves to transition an individual from one stage of life to another. This generally involves a change in the person's social or sexual status. According to Arnold van Gennep, a noted French ethnographer and folklorist in the early 20th century, rites of passage have three phases, separation, liminality, and incorporation. In the first phase, the individual withdraws or moves away from his usual setting, community, or status of origin. This may be done by gathering together to ceremonially send this person on his way, possibly even by having the individual wear distinctive clothing. The middle, liminal stage is characterized by ambiguity, openness, and indeterminacy. One sense of identity dissolves to some extent, bringing about disorientation. In this stage, normal limits to thought, self-understanding, and behavior are relaxed, which can lead to new perspectives. In some cases, people, places, or things may not complete a transition, or a transition between two states may not be fully possible. Those who remain in a state between two other states may become permanently liminal. In the final stage of incorporation, the individual's new status is confirmed, and the individual rejoins his community with recognition of this new status. Rites of passage are many and diverse, and not all follow the complete model. Those that don't follow the complete model will call secular rites of passage. Secular rites of passage can include getting one's driver's license or turning 21. They're a milestone in one's life for sure, but they don't contain all the elements of a true rite of passage. True rites of passage can include rituals where a boy becomes a man at puberty, vision quests, marriage ceremonies, ceremonies celebrating a man becoming a father, rituals where a man becomes a sage or an elder, and even graduations. I'm not totally clear on what entirely distinguishes a rite of passage from an initiation. It seems to me that there's room for some overlap. However, a rite of passage seems to be something that all members of a community go through or have the potential to go through, whereas an initiation seems to be something that only a specific segment of the population can take part in. Initiations contain all the same elements as a rite of passage, separation, liminality, and incorporation. However, initiations typically involve someone becoming a member of a group. These can include baptism into a church, membership in a fraternity or fraternal order, membership into a magical society or mystery school, or even being initiated into a gang. You are one crazy troll. I'm not choosing between my girlfriend and my best friend. That's insane troll logic. I'm with my friends David and Gwydion from a local group called Exploring the Primordial Male. We've been having a leisurely tour of downtown Norfolk after visiting the MacArthur Memorial in a workshop to honor fallen warriors. David, since Gwydion is doing the interview, would you mind giving us a little background on our location? Oh, and keep it brief. We're at the Pagoda and Oriental Garden in downtown Norfolk, which is actually owned by the city of Norfolk. We're outside and there's a very light drizzle on this beautiful mid-April afternoon. We've just gotten done touring the gardens and also looking at the koi and the koi pond here. We also went up to the second story and looked out over downtown Norfolk from the top of the pagoda. I'm here with my friend Gwydion Reem. Uh, he's going to tell us a little bit of right, about rites of passage. Uh, Gwydion, could you tell me about your background with rites of passage? 
Oh, sure. Well, first of all, I want to thank you for inviting me on. Um, I've been involved with a uh, men's spirituality group for almost seven years now, and our primary focus of the group is to create uh, rites of passages for uh, young men, boys, adult men, to try to uh, acknowledge various stages in their in in their lives. Okay. What exactly is a rite of passage? Uh, what what do they do? What are they for? A rite of passage would be, at least the way I approach it, would be a ceremony or a ritual that acknowledges a certain point that a person is going through, whether it's coming into young adulthood or full adulthood or marriage or uh, pick any significant changing point in a person's life and I feel that there should be some type of ritual and ceremony that helps make that transition for the person. Does that also include things like getting a driver's license or turning 21? Can those be considered rites of passage? At one point they probably were. I, I would tend to refer to those as secular rites of passages but they've been so watered down and so secularized that they've lost any meaning to both the participant and anyone who wants to acknowledge it for, for that person. Okay. Also, is there a difference between a rite of passage and, say, an initiation? Are those the same things or are they different things? Well, I would actually tend to view them as different things. Uh, taking initiation first, I view initiations as a closed group that, through a ceremony, opens up to accept someone that was outside of their group into their ranks. And so an initiation is something that is not available to everyone and isn't offered to uh, just any person. Where a rite of passage acknowledges something that a person is going through that can't be changed. You can't deny the fact that you're turning 21. You can't deny the fact that you're getting married. So as a rite of passage, it's something that's acknowledging the inevitable. Okay, so a rite of passage is basically something that's universal to everyone, whereas an initiation could be specific to a certain group. Yes, I, I would agree. Okay. Uh, what are some standard rites of passage, and um, are they all age-specific? Well, when dealing with rites of passages for men and boys, they're, they're not hard and fast age-specific. Uh, for example, uh, transitioning from child into young adult, the ceremony would be based on the individual, their maturity level, their experience level but would occur anywhere between uh, 12 and 14. And this is also common in other cultures and other religious paths. Um, then of course you would have coming a full adult, which could be done anywhere between 18 and 21, depending on how you want to legally recognize the person. Then, of course, marriage, fatherhood, anything like those aren't age-specific. They're circumstance-specific. Also, uh, speaking of age, uh, different things, um, there's also an elderhood, isn't there, or sagehood? Yes. yes, as a matter of fact, um, I recently was involved in creating and conducting a saging ceremony for someone that I actually consider a mentor. With, and we conducted that a couple of months ago. Okay. Do you see, uh, well, this particular podcast, our, our target audience is gay and bisexual men. Do you see that there are any specific kinds of rites of passage that might be different or unique uh, for gay and bi men? I wouldn't say that there are specific rites of passages that would be different. However, um, you would need to take the individual's sexual identity into consideration when creating a rite of passage for them. Um, using the idea of a young male, 12 to 14, I personally wouldn't really incorporate a concept of sexual identity at that age yet, but I would incorporate it into a full adulthood 
ceremony uh, transitioning between 18 and 21 into full adult because at that point whether he is unsure of himself or knows exactly where he is on an identity scale it, it, he needs to understand okay this is the decision that you're making this is what you realize is right for you and the possible circumstances that follow it Okay, I'm going to ask you two more questions. Um, specific, I, I've already mentioned to you two places where I thought that might be, might, uh, be different or unique rites of passage for gay and bi men. One of those is coming out. Do you um, see that as a rite of passage or in itself or as I, I, see, I see that there is a potential to be able to um, create that as a rite of passage. I also see that as potentially falling into more of the initiation category the way I was describing it because of the fact that the larger community is opening up to accept a new member. That's, a, that's an interesting way of looking at it. I hadn't actually thought of it that way until you just mentioned that. Uh, the other thought that I had was uh, given the way aging seems to work in the gay community, whereas uh, men, especially once they hit the age of 30, um, sometimes it's a little later, sometimes it's a little earlier. It just really depends, I guess, on the people, you know, the people themselves and their specific groups. Do you see that as possibly needing uh, a rite of passage kind of from, from uh, I guess, kind of a young adulthood to a later adulthood kind of thing? I, I would be interested in seeing how the, uh, the community at large would address that because it would have to be something that is almost self-policing in the sense of when, when you do reach a particular age, start acknowledging first in yourself and then in others, okay, I'm making this transition to, to being a different type of individual and then when you have enough people of that mindset then you could start creating either an initiation rite or a rite of passage for others to also bring them in. But to be able to create that whole thought and just kind of present it to the community saying, here's what we're going to do. I don't see that happening right away. It's going to take a lot of people trying to do this for themselves and also in very smaller, closer-knit groups before even the idea would even gain enough critical mass to be considered. And that, that's also just assuming that not everyone in the gay community is pagan. Right. Not everyone in the pagan community is gay. <laughs> so, right. Uh, Okay, those were the basic questions I had for you today. Did you have anything that you wanted to add or anything you wanted to um, explain just, more? Just going back to the idea of uh, creating rites of passages that would be specific for uh, gay and bisexual men, uh, again, it's more the idea of taking established circumstances and adapting them for, for the new uh, participant. Uh, with the current mainstreaming of uh, the gay lifestyle, uh, the potential for uh, more legalized gay marriage, gay adoption, those, those things, while seeming specific to, to the gay community, are actually just manifestations of a wider event in any man's life, becoming a husband, becoming a father. So yeah, you would have to tweak it and adapt it based on the individual, but it's really not a completely different rite of passage that's solely for gay and bisexual men. So most of these rites of passages, they're basically the same thing. It, 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 you, for anybody, I think you would individualize the rite of passage yes. to their specific interests, their specific path, that kind of thing. Right, because if you try to make cookie cutter rituals, it's going to lose all meaning and eventually degrade to being getting a driver's license or turning 21 and have no significance for anyone. 
Okay. Did you have anything else that you wanted to say? Or? No, other than thank you for uh, letting me share some of my thoughts and ideas. Okay. Well, thank you very much for being on the podcast. It never really occurred to me that coming out would be considered a rite of passage for gay and bi men. I mean, my idea of a rite of passage is a ritual or ceremony that the community puts together for someone when they reach a certain age, or an initiation when someone joins a fraternity or mystical order. But my research into gay rites of passage seems to indicate that coming out is a rite of passage, or an initiation. It didn't really click with me until I completed the segment earlier in the show on what exactly a rite of passage is. Let's look at the elements of rites of passages and initiations again. The three elements of rites of passage and of initiations are 1. Separation from one's normal setting, community, or status. 2. A period of liminality, a sense of ambiguity, indeterminacy, disorientation, where one's identity dissolves to some extent, which can lead to new perspectives and self-understanding. And 3. Incorporation, where one rejoins the larger community or a specialized community and his new status is acknowledged. Certainly coming out has all of these elements, though there are some minor differences too. For one thing, I think that the first two elements are reversed, or at least intertwined, and of course the entire process is motivated internally rather than orchestrated by the larger community or an outside group. When a gay or bi man starts to discover his homosexual feelings, there is a separation from his previous status in life. Since society, families, and everyone else automatically presume heterosexuality to be the norm, and indoctrinate us as such, most gay and bi men grew up believing that we were straight. We believed, like everyone else, that we'd grow up, get married, and have 2.2 kids. Until we go through the coming out process, our social and sexual status to others and even to ourselves is heterosexual. At some point in our lives, usually around puberty, but sometimes later, we started realizing we were sexually attracted to other men. Since up until this time, really our entire lifetime up until this point, we believed ourselves to be straight, we go through a period of liminality. We wonder what our sexual orientation really is. We might think that maybe we're really straight and this is just a stage we'll grow out of. We struggle with our very identity. Who are we? If we accept ourselves and our identity as gay or bi, what does it mean and how will others react? This struggle can be even harder if we grew up within a homophobic religion with homophobic parents or homophobic peers. I mentioned that I think the first two stages are reversed or intertwined. The reason I say this is because I don't think that we start to separate from our old identity as presumed heterosexual until we start questioning it and discover our real identities as gay or bi. No one separates us from the crowd and tells us we're different. We discover it ourselves. Incorporation can also be different from standard rites of passage, and maybe even a bit tricky. In most rites of passages and initiations, the community at large is happy for the individual to have progressed to his new status. He is seen as wiser and stronger for having gone through the trials of initiation. For many gay and bi men, this really isn't the case, though it should be. His parents and family might be shocked or dismayed. His religion might call him a sinner or tell him he's going to hell if he doesn't change, and his friends might turn on him. This might not be the case for everyone, but a fair number of individuals have experienced these kinds of things upon coming out. Upon coming out, an individual may also be incorporated into the larger gay community. As long as he's not over 30 or overweight, and provided he wears fashionable and trendy clothing, is social and witty, and conforms to the standards of whatever peer group he wishes to join, rather than standing out as an individual. Okay, I'm being a bit cynical here, and those are rants for another show. But... The main point is that after everything else, the gay or bi man accepts his new identity as gay, regardless of what anyone else thinks or says. If he can do that, then he's truly been initiated. I'll deal with those murderous trolls. I've already mentioned coming out as a rite of passage specific to gay and bi men, and I'd like to propose one more. A lot has been said about how gay men live in a state of eternal adolescence, never quite reaching a state of maturity. And I've already mentioned how around the age of 30, gay men turn from vibrant youth into old trolls practically overnight. I really think that gay men and bi men who identify more with gay culture than with straight culture should have a rite of passage when they turn 30 to help transition them from the state of youth and adolescence to the state of adulthood and oldness. Since there isn't an existing term for such a rite of passage, I'm going to coin one. I hope it sticks. I'd like to call this rite of passage a trolling, much like a saging but much more fun. 
Later I'll talk about how a trolling rite of passage might be enacted, but I'm going to give some research background and my own experiences first. Before I do any of that, though, I'm going to pretext everything with an article I found online called Happy Troll Day to Me, written by a guy named Larry Bob. Happy Troll Day to me. I turned 30 yesterday. That means by gay male standards I am now officially a troll. Sure many people attain trolldom at a younger age by virtue of being ugly, but in the event that I was not already considered a troll, and for all I know I already was, I definitely have now become one now that I have ended my third decade. That means that now I will have to spend twice as much time at the tanning salon twice as many hours at the gym, spend twice as much money on facial creams and manicures, and still face twice the rejections I did before. Thankfully, two times zero is still zero. Yes, it's a truly liberating feeling to finally be a troll. No more do I have to ignore vain little gym bots since they are already guaranteed to ignore me. Life begins at 30. Now I can happily be a bitter old queen. I expect any week now people will start calling me auntie. No longer will I have to disguise my crow's feet. I will proudly stand in harsh lighting, every wrinkle and baggy eyelid fully unfurled. I revel in my trollness. Did you ever notice how gay demographic surveys list ages as 16 to 20, 21 to 25, 26 to 29, and 30 and over? Yes, once you've reached 30, you might as well be a senior citizen as far as the gay world is concerned. I've already started listening to show tunes, going to Betty Davis film festivals, and henna-ing my hair so as to fit in with my newfound demographic peers. I still have a few years to lose my teeth, so I can't give a decent gum job yet, unfortunately. I guess it's not too late to start lying about my age. Maybe I should try 28 on again for size. I can hardly remember what 28 was like that first time around, so I may as well give it another go. Gay male years are measured on some sort of logarithmic scale. The people who are under 20 live a fuller and more fulfilling life than it's a long, slow, but invisible life for those older queens. Or maybe it's more of a hyperbola. Hyperbola. Considering that gay men are not only late bloomers, often not emerging from the closet until their early 20s, only to fade with an early frost as 30 rapidly approaches. Everyone always writes their personal ads looking for people younger than them, 16 up to their age, or even 16 to 25. Everyone except those looking for a daddy type, and I'm hardly the daddy type. Fortunately, I'm already hitched, so I don't need to worry. If you're not yet a troll, don't worry, you soon will be. Best wishes from the other side of the hill, Larry Bob. In the book, The Gay Warrior, the authors argue that gay men often live out the archetype of the pure, seldom attaining the status of adulthood or warriorhood. Some of the signs of the expression of a pure archetype in a person's life can include immaturity, narcissism, and a desire to escape into fantasy or idealism in preference to remaining with the reality of a situation. Another article called Gay Adults, Gay Adults, Where Are You? in the White Crane Journal argues that there is no concept of gay adults in the gay community, only older gays and younger gays. But in order for a community to thrive, it must contain the four archetypal stages of life, youth, adults, elders, and ancestors. Each stage builds on the one preceding it, and the persons in each stage learn from the stage after their own. The ancestors look out for the welfare and protection of the community and keep the vast storehouse of knowledge that shamans, dream workers, and vision seekers can access and learn from. The elders are responsible for the spiritual well-being of the community. They transmit spiritual information, knowledge, and wisdom from one generation to the next, often by conveying their stories and the history of the tribe. Adults are responsible for the material well-being of the community. They do the work, provide the food, raise the young, protect the community, perform the ceremonies, including initiations and rites of passage, and pass on to the youth practical knowledge. Adults care about themselves and also something larger than themselves, the state of the community. They have a sense of civic responsibility. Youth symbolize the future. A healthy community will treat its young people seriously and provide them guidance as they grow into adult roles in the community. The positive aspects of youth are having fun, being creative, making mistakes, and learning from them, learning about life, sex, and love, and thinking about possibilities for the future. The negative aspects of youth that are often condemned in gay culture are self-absorption, narcissism, and immaturity. There are several arguments about why there are so few people living the adult archetype in the gay community. One is that gay men have a delayed adolescence. Since we are usually still figuring out our sexuality in adolescence when our straight peers are already dating, and since sometimes we don't even have the opportunity to date until we go off to college or move out from mom and dad, we often go through a delayed adolescence period in our 20s rather than our teens. The problem is many gay men are acting from an adolescent stage well into their 30s, 40s, and beyond. Another explanation for the missing adults is the generation lost to the AIDS epidemic. 
these would be people who would now be in the 30 to 50 age group. While it was a terrible loss, the Center for Disease Control estimates that only 8 to 12 percent of our community from this generation were lost, leaving 88 to 92 percent still around. A third argument is that gay men usually don't have children or have to support a family, so unlike heterosexual men, they don't have to grow up or assume adult responsibilities. These may be valid points to some extent, but perhaps the reason so many gay men remain in the adolescent pure stage is because they haven't truly been initiated into adulthood. Perhaps they need a rite of passage to help them transition into adulthood. I mentioned my own experiences of growing older in the last episode, and especially how I had problems related to ageism when I turned 30. I mentioned how a few guys in their lower to mid-twenties didn't want to go out with me because I was too old, and I mentioned how I ran into all sorts of problems and drama with a student group on campus where I worked for asking one of the gu- these guys out. I was only 30 and the guy was in his twenties, yet I was treated like I was some kind of sexual predator for having an interest. Sometime within a year of all this happening, I first heard about rites of passage. I attended a workshop on this topic, and one thing that stuck with me was that without a rite of passage, we often have to learn the lessons of life transitions the hard way, and the universe often has a way of making sure we learn them. I thought back to my own experiences and wondered how much easier it might have been if someone had prepared me for what to expect. I knew on some level that ageism in the gay community existed, but no one ever warned me of what I'd experienced or gave me coping strategies to handle it. Also, I'd only been out of college after receiving my second degree by a few years, so even though I'd become a staff member and pretty low on the totem pole at that, I still felt I was on a peer level with students. No one warned me that somehow I was becoming an authority figure. I certainly learned the hard way about what it is to be an over-30 gay man, and I still bear a scar from it to this day. So what should a trolling ceremony be like? I'm not going to go into too much detail because I think it should be personalized for each person, and I don't want to interfere with the creativity of those who wish to perform one. Really, though, since the whole concept of being old at 30 when most men are entering the prime of their life is pretty ridiculous and exaggerated, I think the ceremony should be too. There should certainly be some serious elements to it too, but I see black balloons, over-the-hill streamers, troll dolls, you know those things with the wild fluorescent hair that Mimi from the Drew Carey Show collected. Yes, those. The 30-year-old should be constantly reminded of how old he is, that he's now a troll, and how close to the grave he really is. Perhaps he should be made to lurk under a bridge for a while. Oh, and someone should sit down with him and warn him about how all the young and beautiful people are going to treat him now. Maybe even show him where the geriatric gay bar is. After all this, he should be embraced in his new role as a troll and as a gay adult by other gay men over the age of 30. So there you have it. Happy trolling. April 7, 2008. Erotic Jesus sparks art debate in Austria. They knew it would be risky to exhibit a homoerotic version of Christ's Last Supper, but curators at Museum of Vienna's Roman Catholic Cathedral weren't ready for a barrage of angry messages and calls to be shut down. 
the source of the dispute which Austrian media has dubbed Vienna's version of the Mohammed character row is retrospective honoring Austria's cherished artist Alfred Herdlicka, who turned 80 earlier this year. But not everyone has been wishing Herdlicka a happy birthday, and the Cathedral Museum's director and Cardinal Christoph Schoenborn the Archbishop of Vienna have both come under fire from some museum visitors and Catholic websites. The church hastily removed the main picture titled A Homosexual Orgy of the Apostles, as Hardlicka describes it. But the protest has continued, much to the surprise of the small cathedral museum, which is nestled down a narrow street in Vienna's historic Gothic quarter. The museum's director defends both Hardlicka's work and his decision to host the artist's controversial versions of biblical imagery in a museum tied to the Catholic Church. We think Hardlicka is entitled to represent people in this carnal, drastic way, Bernard Boiler said in his small museum office across the street from Vienna's imposing St. Stephen's Cathedral. He said the museum never intended to offend people, but that art should be allowed to provoke a debate. I don't see any blasphemy here, he said, gesturing at a crucifixion picture showing a soldier simultaneously beating Jesus and holding his genitals. People can imagine what they want to. Poehler says that picture drew particular criticism from some visitors along with a sculpture of Jesus on the cross without a face or a loincloth that some Christians found offensive. But the most disputed work was Leonardo's Last Supper, restored by Pier Paolo Hossolini, which showed cavorting apostles sprawling over the dining table and masturbating each other. Hardlicka says he represented the men in this way because there are no women in the Da Vinci painting which inspired it. Pasolini was a controversial Italian filmmaker and writer who was murdered in the 1970s. The exhibition has attracted fierce criticism on religion blogs in Austria, Germany, and even in the United States, with bloggers denouncing it with such terms as blasphemy and desecration. The exhibition should never have taken place. The director should apologize to Catholics worldwide for this, an article on conservative Catholic website Cruisenet said. In the United States, conservative columnist Richard Dreher wrote on his widely read religion blog, I wouldn't have guessed that given his reputation, a man like Cardinal Schoenborn would have stood for this abomination for half a second. The museum took down the Last Supper piece at Cardinal Schoenborn's request just over a week after the Religion, Flesh, and Power exhibition opened, leaving a blank wall at the entrance of the display. This has nothing to do with censorship, rather corresponds with the understood reverence for the sacred, the Cardinal's spokesperson said in a statement. It is also an act of respect towards those believers who feel this portrayal offended and provoked them in their deepest religious sensitivity. The diocese says the museum's decision to show Hordlicka's work does not mean it identifies with everything it portrays. Hordlicka agrees but points out that the Last Supper piece was not intended as a swipe at the Catholic Church. There was such a reaction to its physicality. For me, it was quite surprising the museum wanted to show the piece in the first place, he told Reuters by telephone. If the Cathedral Museum is having problems now, it's not really my affair. It's for the Cathedral Museum to deal with. He said overall he was pleased with the display and praised the director for being strong. A communist and atheist, Hardlicka has said the Bible is the most thrilling book he has ever read and that religious imagery forms a central core to his work. Poehler says the angry emails he has received remind him of how some reacted to Mel Gibson's 2004 film, The Passion of the Christ. In his opinion, critics of the film's violence and physicality also missed the point. The crucifixion was brutal, and it would be a lie to say everything in our world is nice, he said, pointing out that Hurdlicka is an anti-war activist who has seen the effects of Nazism and violence firsthand. We in Europe have been affected by this, and it influences how we see Hurdlicka's work. Boilers, like Hurdlicka, says the art debate can be compared to the Danish cartoon row, where an image of the Prophet Muhammad with a bomb in his turban enraged some in the Muslim world who saw it as blasphemous. The angry reaction to Herlika's work has only been verbal, and the museum says some Christians have been balanced and support the exhibition, despite disagreeing with the artist's approach. Curator Martina Giot said the exhibition was meant to prompt this kind of balanced reaction. The museum wanted to show that controversial works inspired by religious imagery can be discussed without taboo. People have said the Catholic Church has become a lot more liberal, she said, but in the end, the reaction showed this perhaps isn't the case. 
I thought this news item was an interesting contrast to the sexual openness of paganism. I mean, would pagans cry sacrilege if an artist portrayed one of our gods, such as Dionysus, partaking in a homosexual orgy? Or would there be an outcry for depicting any of our gods, or goddesses for that matter, as nude or as sexual beings? I think not, which is why I love paganism. Oh, you little bitch troll from hell. I've decided to dedicate this episode's fairy facts to the gay liberation activist Harry Hay, whose birthday would have been earlier this month on April 7th. Harry Hay was born April 7th, 1912 in Worthing, Sussex, England. He was raised Catholic. In 1919, his family immigrated to California. Later in 1950, Hay began his notable leadership role in the gay civil rights movement. To many, Hay is considered the founder of the American gay rights movement. Gathering up a handful of supporters, he founded the Mattachine Society. At that time, 19 years before the Stonewall Riots, it was illegal for homosexuals to gather in public, and the American Psychiatric Association still defined homosexuality as a mental illness. Very few homosexuals were publicly out. The Mattachine Society met in secret, and the men would often bring a female friend to prevent being publicly identified as gay. Even so, the group was very radical for its time. Hay and the Mattachine Society were among the first to argue that gay people were not just individuals, but in fact represented a cultural minority. They even called for public marches of homosexuals decades before gay pride parades became popular. Hay's concept of gays as a cultural minority came directly from his Marxist studies, and the rhetoric that he and his colleague Charles Rowland employed often reflected the militant communist tradition. Despite his homosexuality, Hay married fellow Communist Party member Anita Platke in 1938 because the Communist Party rejected gays. They did not allow gays to be members, claiming that homosexuality was a deviation. Perhaps more important was the fear that a member's usually secret homosexuality would leave them open to blackmail and made them a security risk in an era of red baiting. Concerned about party difficulties, and as he put more energy into the Mattachine Society, Hay himself approached the Communist Party's leaders and recommended his own expulsion. However, after much soul-searching, the party, clearly reeling at the loss of a respected member and theoretician of 18 years standing, refused to expel Hay, instead dropping him as a security risk and announcing him to be a lifelong friend of the people. As the Mattachine Society grew with chapters around the country, the organization saw the communist ties of its founders, including Hay, as a threat during the McCarthy witch hunt era, and by 1954 the Mattachine Society had expelled Hay and others from its leadership. The organization took a more cautious direction so that by the time of the Stonewall Riots in 1969, the Mattachine Society came to be seen by many as stodgy and assimilationists. Hay reviled what he saw as the movement's propensity for selling out its fringe members for easy and often illusionary respectability. In 1950, when Hay formed the Mattachine Society, his radical vision was captured in a manifesto he wrote, boldly stating that gay people were not like heterosexuals. Indeed, Hay insisted homosexuals formed a unique culture from which heterosexuals might learn a great deal. This notion was at decisive odds with the view put forth by many other Mattachine members that homosexuals should not be discriminated against because gay people were just like straight people. Hay rejected the idea that homosexuals should assimilate into society. Instead, he thought they should change society so that gays were accepted as full individuals. He rose up against huge odds in his struggle to give American gays a voice by constantly pushing the margins of acceptability, asking questions, and taking a stand at enormous personal risk. According to Hay, we pulled the ugly green frog skin of heterosexual conformity over us, and that's how we got through school with a full set of teeth. We know how to live through their eyes. We can always play their games, but are we denying ourselves by doing this? If you're going to carry the skin of conformity over you, you are going to suppress the beautiful prince or princess within you. By the late 1970s, the gay movement, which had devolved from a liberation movement into a quest for gay rights, treated Hay as a benign crackpot. 
He was frequently praised as an important historical figure, but no one was really interested in what he had to say, especially since the Christian right had already begun to launch vicious anti-gay attacks with Anita Bryant's Save Our Children campaign of 1979 and the California Briggs Initiative, which would have banned openly gay school teachers a year later. Hay became an outspoken critic of gay assimilationism and went on to help found both Jesse Jackson's Rainbow Coalition and the gay men's group the Radical Fairies, as well as being active in the Native American movements. In 1979, Hay founded the Radical Fairies. The spiritual core of the Radical Fairies was the same as the one Hay had envisioned for his original Mattachine Society, the conviction that gay men were spiritually different from other people. They were more in touch with nature, bodily pleasure, and the true essence of human nature, which embraced both male and female. Hay's spiritual radicalism had its roots in 17th century British dissenting religious groups such as the Diggers, Ranters, Quakers, and Levellers, who sought to refashion the world after their egalitarian socialist, non-hierarchical, utopian views. Unlike his dissenting predecessors, however, it wasn't millennial Christianity that drove Hay, but a belief that all sexuality was sacred, and a belief that queer sexuality had an essential outsider quality that made the outcast homosexual the perfect prophet for a heterosexual world lost in strict gender roles, enforced reproductive sexuality, and numbingly straight-jacketed social personae. The radical fairies were something of a cross between born-again queers and in-your-face frontline shock troops practicing genderfuck drag. In the early 1980s, Hay protested the exclusion of the North American Man-Boy Love Association, NAMBLA, from participation in the LGBT movement. Though he was never a member of NAMBLA, he gave a number of speeches at its meetings, and in 1986 he marched in the Los Angeles Pride Parade, from which the organization had been banned, with a sign reading, NAMBLA Walks With Me. In the 1990s, despite his 40-year relationship with John Burnside, the aging radical still proclaimed the joys of sexual promiscuity and denounced the increasingly popular mandate that monogamy was a preferable lifestyle. In his own determined, often irritating manner, Harry Hay resisted becoming a model homosexual hero. Nowhere was this more evident than in Hay's persistent support of Nambla's right to march in gay pride parades. Again in 1994, he refused to march with the official pride parade commemorating the Stonewall riots in New York because it refused Nambla a place in the event. Instead, he joined a competing march dubbed the Spirit of Stonewall, which included Nambla, as well as many of the original Gay Liberation Front members. Even many of Hay's more dedicated supporters could not side with him on this, but from Hay's point of view, silencing any part of the movement because it was disliked or hated by mainstream culture was both a moral failing and a seriously mistaken political strategy. In Harry's eyes, such a stance failed to grapple seriously with the reality that there would always be some aspect of the gay movement to which mainstream culture would object. By pretending the movement could be made presentable by eliminating a specific objectionable group, drag queens and leather people were the objects of similar purges in the 1970s and 1980s. Gay leaders not only pandered to the idea of respectability, but betrayed their own community. In October of 2002, Hay died of lung cancer in San Francisco at the age of 90, survived by his life partner of 39 years, John Burnside. Oh no! Snack a troll! I purchased the book Gay Warrior because it promised to be a guidebook for gay men of all ages teaching the principles of initiation. The book was written by two psychologists, Jim Fickey and Gary Grimm. The authors claim that a majority of gay men live the pure or immature male archetype and that we should be striving to live the warrior archetype. While the book has a lot of valuable information, and I agree with a lot of it, after reading it, I'm not entirely sure the authors effectively provide a framework for transitioning from one stage to the next, which after all is what initiations and rites of passage are all about. A lot of the book talks about how gay men are betrayed in life. We're betrayed by our parents, our churches, and our peers. According to the authors, we're also betrayed by the existence of HIV, though personally I'm not sure how a disease can betray someone. I expected the chapter titled Betrayal Through War to talk about Don't Ask, Don't Tell and Military Homophobia, but instead it talks about how men who were in wars like Vietnam came home with emotional trauma, an experience common to any who fought in the war, and not specifically gay men. The other really annoying thing about the book is how the authors put a plug about the need for gay men to go through therapy in what seemed like every chapter. While a night out at my local gay bar might confirm this, the authors make blanket statements about how gay men are betrayed, such as implying that all gay men are treated differently by their fathers than straight sons would be, because on some level the father senses they are gay, and how fathers effectively abandon them. Some of the blanket statements didn't fit with my own experiences. 
or perhaps I'm just in denial. I could certainly see them as issues for some gay men. They also make blanket statements about the need of gay men to, in effect, divorce our parents because we place far too much weight on their opinions and advice. I could certainly see this if one's parents are overly homophobic or even abusive. And as a gay adult or as a gay warrior, one must make his own decisions. But even straight adult men and warriors go to their parents for help and advice sometimes. I think their main point was to realize that one's parents are fallible and not always right. I actually found myself appreciating my own parents more from reading the book. They've certainly treated me better than some parents have treated their gay sons. While I've learned in my life that they are indeed human and not always right, and while I've learned to ultimately keep my own counsel, I've also learned that they, along with my sister, are my best friends and my greatest allies in life. The book does examine the pure archetype and how it plays out in gay men. They go into a handful of sub-archetypes. The good boy who follows the rules obediently, the narcissist who is selfish and self-absorbed, the addict who can't get enough drugs, alcohol, sex, and some other substance or act, the irresponsible boy who is your basic low achiever, and the oppressor who turns his own low self-esteem toward oppressing or insulting others. According to the authors, these play out as survival tactics and defense mechanisms that gay men use in a homophobic and potentially unsafe world. Again, the authors do a good job of explaining what these sub-archetypes are and how they play out in gay men's lives, but they fail to explain how to transition beyond them. A much better book on these shadow archetypes and how to transition beyond them is King, Warrior, Magician, Lover by Robert Moore and Douglas Gillette. The second half of the book explains what a gay warrior is. He's transformed all these betrayals and negative archetypes into wisdom. He's out to the world. He's left home. He's healed his inner homophobe. He's in touch with his feelings, including his anger. He's assertive rather than passive. He's learned healthy interdependence with other gay men. He's become political. He's found a spiritual path that works for him. According to the authors, therapy is a valid spiritual path. All in all, he's found his own bliss. Yet other than the possibility of therapy, which according to the authors is a modern form of initiation, we're not entirely sure how he got there. I'd really hoped more would be said on either a pagan or a men's movement initiatory process. Despite my criticisms, there are some things I liked about the book. The authors do go deeply into issues affecting gay men's ability to live effectively, even if they do make blanket statements, and they do give a model for what an effective gay man, a gay warrior, would be like, even if they fail to give us a method of transition other than therapy and divorcing our parents. The authors talk about mentorship, and I might use some of this material in the next episode of the show. An important point they make in parts of the book is that gay men are most attracted to the group they least trust, other men. Those who were abandoned by their father first learned to mistrust other men at an early age, and then later in his youth he may have been abused or intimidated by other boys for being gay, and then even later he may have to deal with the cruelty and bitchiness of other gay men. Add to that the natural competitiveness among men in general. A gay man may spend more time with women and trust them more than he does other men because of such traumas. He may also lack positive role models of manhood. This deep mistrust might make it difficult for him to develop stable and trusting relationships with other men. Another point they make that you'll find echoed throughout various episodes of my show is that gay men shouldn't be confined to straight models of relationships. They do argue that monogamy is important in the first stage of a relationship while a couple is learning about each other and developing trust and intimacy. But after that, they argue that the most lasting gay couples who are together for a long time find ways to incorporate non-monogamy into their relationships. They argue that seeing monogamy as the only option and in strict black and white terms is probably heterosexual sexist, believing heterosexual relationship models to be superior to homosexual relationship models, and fails to take into account how the gay lifestyle and path are different from the heterosexual lifestyle and path. They argue that monogamy is a straight model of relationships primarily set up to keep family units intact. It also invalidates the experience of gay men to experience and experiment with life to the fullest. Hated it! Well, that's it for this episode. I think this has been the best and most information-packed episode yet. Before I end, I'd like to offer thanks to the many people who have helped or contributed to this episode. I'd like to thank Gwydion and David from the Exploring the Primordial Male group for taking part in the interview on Rites of Passage. I'd like to thank Mark for his letter and for tipping me off that this past month was Harry Hay's birthday. I'd like to thank Robin Herney from the Gay Druid Brotherhood for his input on Gay Rites of Passage. Even though I couldn't use his Druidic coming out ritual in the show, I will provide a link to it on the show's webpage. 
I'd like to thank Julian from Homomoot for reading over my Kernunos segment and offering to provide audio and possibly video from one of his Kernunos writes for a future show. I hope he'll follow through with this. And lastly, I'd like to thank all my little listeners for tuning in. Until next time, go bless some bees. Get it? Blessed bee? Bless some bees? Anyway, see you next time. Thanks for listening to Discovering the Male Mysteries with Mel Mystery Podcast. You can find out more information about the show, its hosts, and find a link to our Yahoo group by going to http colon backslash backslash m-e-l-m-y-s-t-e-r-y dot m-a-t-r-i-x w-e-r-x dot com. That's http colon backslash backslash melmystery.matrixworks.com If you would like to submit original poetry or music, suggest a topic, or guest host a future segment, you can find information on how to do so, including a way to email me on the Mail Mysteries website. Testing. I just want to see if it works. Actually, that's a very interesting question. I was speaking one time with a associate of mine named Eric. Actually, you know what? To hell with Eric. Now, could, could you cut this out, please? Sure. <laughs> well, that's it for this episode. I think this has been the best and most information. Information. Kernunos. Kernunos. Pashu Pate. That's all, folks.